Hello, my name is Jonathan Getz, and this is Phonicle, a podcast devoted to sharing true life stories, both big and small, told by our elders. My hope is that this podcast encourages others to ask elders in their lives to tell more stories, revealing remarkable life experiences. To learn more about Phonicle, visit phonicle.com, P-H-O-N-I-C-L-E.com. I'd now like to introduce you to David Hill, born in 1942 in Nakona, Texas. In addition to being a psychologist, David has recently written a musical based on the Ezekiel Airship, which was an experimental aircraft built in East Texas around 1900, just as the Wright brothers were designing their own flyer in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. David's original compositions for the musical will be heard throughout this episode. On the wings of Ezekiel we will fly, we'll let those clouds of worry my brother is an engineer uh, and worked in the aircraft industry his whole career. I mean, we were all crazy for airplanes. Uh, every time an air, aircraft flew over, you'd stop and look up, and I still do, no matter. Even if it's a, just a small airplane, we used to call them Piper Cubs, a small private airplane, or if it's, a, if it's hopefully a, a military aircraft, which we don't see much anymore. But when I was a kid, they were in the sky all the time because my folks moved to White Settlement, Texas, which was a... Well, now you would call it a suburb of Fort Worth, but uh, they moved there because of the uh, what they call a defense plant, and uh, and they were building aircraft for the war, primarily B-25s, Mitchell B-25 bombers, which they called the boxcar of the sky. Uh, it was a twin-engine bomber, but a big airplane. So that's one of my earliest memories is is seeing the uh, B-25s fly overhead. It didn't ever get very cold. In White Settlement, uh, typically on Christmas, we were out riding our bikes. So it'd be a you know 70 degree day often. So we would periodically move our bed out in the backyard. And, and the kids, when I was a kid, I remember doing this many times. Mom and dad would let us move the whole contraption, the whole bed out in the backyard and sleep under the stars. You could see the Milky Way from my house then. You can't now at all because of the light pollution, but uh, you could see it very clearly. And, and uh, uh, But the, the aircraft would fly over then, you know, you'd be lying in bed at night and you'd see the lights and the, and the shape of this B-25 fly over. I saw the lightning in the sky. I heard the thunder. There's a theater in Fort Worth called Casa Manana. My sister was an usher. So she said, come on, I got a ticket. You got to go see this show. And they were doing pajama game. It just was a whole new awakening to me to see these people, these actors and actresses telling this story, but singing a lot of it. Uh, Hernando's Hideaway was in pajama game, but it had lots of other memorable music. And so... Mary, my sister, I got me a seat, and it's right on the aisle. And, of course, the actors, it, to make their entrances, had to come down the aisle because the stage was surrounded. There was no, no curtain or anything. And so they had to make their entrances by coming down the aisle, and this guy would practically brush by me and go on stage and sing, or this, this young woman. And I had never seen anything like it, you know, to, uh, to have a, a story told with this much music and then to see these people get up there and really emote, draw, really draw you into the story and, uh, and make you feel, you know, whatever the composer or author was trying to get by singing and, and script. It was really amazing. The sky is the limit with this man. 
big ideas straight from God's heavenly plan. It's up to My dad uh, worked at the defense plant. He went in at seven, worked till three, and then he changed clothes. We had dinner about four o'clock, and then dad went to, at about five o'clock, opened the barbershop and worked till seven or eight at night. Well, I, when I would, got to be about 16 years old, uh, he said, why don't you go to barber school? Still in high school, of course. I don't remember what my reaction to that was. I mean, I was, so, I was kind of clueless, like, you know, like all 16-year-old boys are. And I thought, well, okay. You know, the, uh, it's a barber college. You get free haircuts in there. And you can imagine the clientele that was wandering in. I mean, these were the street people. Uh, a lot of them wandering in and get free haircuts and shaves. And so that's who, that's who we practiced on, these poor guys. And so I started going after school every day, driving, driving down the freeway, smoking my pell mells, and parking my car in this parking lot. And I came back one night after I finished my shift at Barber College and had obviously, there'd been a fire in my car. And, and the parking lot, I asked the parking lot attendant, I said, well, you know, what's the deal here? And he said, oh, is that your car? He said, yeah, we had to call the fire, fire department. It caught on fire. Well, undoubtedly, I flicked some ashes from my pell-mell in the back, and it caught in the back seat. So it burned out, you know, burned the whole interior of my car. It's not enough, not near enough. I took one look at Ann, and I thought, well, boy, she's really hot, but no, no way she's going to go out with me, so... So we sang in this choir together for two or three years, probably. I would date somebody for a little while, and then we'd break up, and and she'd date somebody, and, you know, and then they'd break up. And, and so uh, our paths just never crossed. Well, the choir, we, we made trips every year, the choir did. We'd get on a bus, and we'd go to California, or, and, and we went to New Orleans one year. So um, that's where we, we uh, linked up. Juan Ann and I really linked up. Now, there was a complication in that I was engaged to somebody else at the time. But um, we had roommates, all of us. We'd pair up, and when we choir traveled, we'd stay in the homes of people in these Baptist churches. So we were always staying in somebody's home every night. So my roommate and I and Juan Ann, my wife, Ann, and her roommate decided, you know what, let's tour. We had one day free. Let's tour New Orleans. None, None of us had been there before. So we got on the uh, trolley and took it all the way around the city and saw the sights and did spent that day together. And, and then we just kind of stayed together for the rest of that tour, the four of us, not romantically or anything, just interacting with each other on the bus and so forth. Well, I came back and I realized, you know, you're about to make a big mistake if you don't at least see, reach out to her and see if she'd be interested in but uh, but Anne won in. She never came on to me in any way, and she never saw me as anything other than a safe guy to hang out with because he's engaged. So I um, right after that, within a month, I had broken up with this girl I was engaged to 50 years ago now. We've been married 50 years. So, And on our wedding night, we, were, we didn't have a reception. We just had a receiving line at the back of the church. But we had the car hidden in the funeral home which was across the street from the church, because the tradition then was if you could find uh, the bride and the groom in their car, you'd chase them all over town, just chase them mercilessly, trying to, you know, try to worry them or harry them before they went and had their, for their wedding night somewhere. 
And so, uh, so we had the car hidden, but sure enough, they, they found us and chased us around for a while, but really, really upset one end. She really, she started crying and we were, and, and finally they let us go. Depending on where you grew up, what David is describing may sound familiar, but I wasn't aware of newlywed harassment beyond the empty tin cans we've all seen tied to car bumpers in the movies. These antics, originally known as Sherivari, date back centuries to Europe, when they could carry intentions of humiliation or even ostracism for weddings deemed socially unacceptable. It's believed French colonists may have brought the playful aspects of the tradition to Quebec, where it eventually found its way down through rural America. And in David's case, in Texas, it may be referred to as chivalry. Acts of chivalry have dwindled since the mid-20th century, but you can still find variations that turn into family traditions, like brides in Kansas and Nebraska who are joyfully carried through the streets in a wheelbarrow. So we were going to go back to our apartment on 8th Street, and then we were going to leave on a trip. We were going to go to New Mexico to the mountains for our honeymoon. Well, she, one aunt's friend, Darla, had gotten married a few months earlier. And Darla had gotten into her apartment and they had tied bells to the bed springs and all of those mean things that girls might do to each other. Well, we got to our apartment and I literally picked her up. I was going to carry her head. So we opened the door. It's trashed. Our apartment's been totally trashed by Darla and uh, some of her other friends. So somehow they got a key, got in there. There was no way we could spend the night. We could spend our wedding night in that apartment after all. That was also very upsetting to fan you, but you can understand how a new bride is going to be so upset by this somebody that's wrecked her place. But we went to the motel, and, and we, we didn't have any trouble finding a, getting a, a room in Plainview, Texas. We spent the night in the motel, and the next morning we left for Glorieta, New Mexico. first child, Aaron. Fathers were not in the delivery room in those days. So, I mean, I'm a psychologist and I, you know, I'm like sort of a, uh, on a professional level with the physicians. And so I, t- I talked to this obstetrician. I said, I really want to be in the delivery room. He said, okay. And I don't think the nursing staff did not like the fact that I was in there because I know they were afraid they'd have two patients to deal with and I'd, I'd faint or something. Juan had she had a long, long labor, and partly because we went in too early. We went to the hospital too early. We were nervous and didn't know what we were doing. Well, just about the time she was ready to deliver, they took her to the delivery room. And the doctor said, come on, let's go watch the kickoff. And there was a football game coming on. He said, we got time to watch the kickoff. So he and I, I went to the doctor's lounge with him. We watched the kickoff while my wife was laboring away in the delivery room. But then he, then he took me in with him, and uh, I didn't think, um, or, or, or come close to it. I didn't, ha- I didn't have any particular problem with it. Aaron, however, didn't start breathing right away. So, oh, we had this was, that was a really scary time. She had gotten, like, like any child, you know, a, a fetus would, some of the medication that they gave one in because she had such a long delivery. So some of it had, had you know, crossed the placental barrier. So she was just worn out at, at when she was born. And she and the doctor actually it looked to me, it appeared to me that he resuscitated her, but because he did pick her up and he just put his mouth right on hers and there was a real sucking sound at first and then you know, and then she started crying. She was but she hadn't cried yet. And so this was a little worrisome. 
And, uh, and so he'd put her aside in the bassinet and he was tending to, to my wife. And the nurse, and I saw that, and I was observing all of this little drama. And the nurse, she looked at him and looked at him and then she went over and got him. She said, you got to come over here. And of course, Ben, one in, was just really upset, frightened. So, so was I. But worked out. She, we were afraid, of course, that she'd have brain damage, but she didn't. He said she was not, she was not oxygen deprived enough to cause any problems, but it didn't. But scary. Without a here right by my side, what would I do? Nobody's heard of it. That was that was my experience. I tell somebody about the Ezekiel airship, and they say I never heard of it. So as it, it hit me, it struck me that, you know, that's this is exactly the kind of story that gets lost. So I said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to write a play, and it didn't evolve to a musical on purpose. I was going to use some old good old Baptist hymns from Texas that I grew up on and still know many of them by heart. I was going to incorporate them into it, and and that just led to. People hear me talk about it and listening to the story and how I was going to use these hymns and saying, why don't you write original music? So Reverend Burl Cannon had a college degree in engineering. He was reading the book of Ezekiel. And there's a passage in the book of Ezekiel uh, which tells about the prophet Ezekiel being transported from one place to another in this craft. And the Bible describes it as having wheels within wheels. And so... The, the, the aircraft that he designed, the airship, has four wheels that have paddles. And the wheels move forward, but the, the paddles turn backward. He knew very well how much thrust he was generating. But he apparently didn't know anything about lift, the, the, the physics of lift. Now, Burl didn't have any money, didn't have any resources to contribute to this project. So he partnered with Paul Thorison who owned the foundry in Pittsburgh, Texas. So they formed the Ezekiel Airship Manufacturing Company, Incorporated, and sold shares. They still were planning to make their money from winning this prize at the 1903 World's Fair where in, in St. Louis, where they were going to offer a $100,000 prize for the greatest aeronautical achievement. So they built it, the, and it was flown sometime in 1902. Now here's where the stories start to diverge because different eyewitnesses tell different tales. Apparently, it was flown on kind of an impulse. That, and in fact, it's not even clear that Burl Cannon was present at the time the aircraft was flown. One of the workers got in it, they cranked it up, and it, and it uh, lifted off the ground. Some people say it lifted and just sort of drifted a little bit off the ground over a fence and then back down. Others say, you know, it got elevation and flew for a distance. Uh, so they decided they'd take this whistle-stop tour, and they, they were transporting it on a flat car, railroad car, so it was out in the open. And they got to Texarkana, and a, a huge storm came through, a thunderstorm, which destroyed the Ezekiel airship. So he came back literally with nothing. The story, in a way, has got everything. It's got an inspiration from God. Um, it's got somebody trying to surmount imposs- almost impossible odds to, to make it work. Then you know it's got it's got everybody drawn in. There's also this historical context of all the other things that are going on. Uh, the, it's the women's suffrage movement. It's the temperance movement. That's the skeleton of the musical. Uh, but but the story is told from the perspective of four couples, and the temperance movement is where 
Lucy, Paul's wife, is really, she's involved in that. So there's conflict between the, the temperance movement and the suffrage movement. And then, you know, it's lost. I mean, the whole thing comes, literally comes crashing down. And what do you make of that? You know, about recognizing and understanding that, that disappointment is, is one of the big issues in life. And how we react to a disappointment is, is one of the main tests of our, of our character and our ability to survive and our ability to uh, persevere. So um, each of the couples has to come to grips with it in their own way. It sounds like Guys and Dolls. It sounds like Music Man. It sounds like so many of those stories I've seen portrayed. I could just see it. I could visualize it. Women dressed in Gibson girl, long dresses. And, you know, so there's, so there's the fashions of the period. There's the issues of, the, of that time period to deal with. And you write a bunch of songs that sound kind of like uh, music hall songs of that more or less time, Gilbert and Sullivan-like. Those are the kind of things that made me think, you know, this is really could be a good musical. Who knows where it could lead. That's Rebecca Johnston singing and Terry Barham on piano. You also heard Paul Morell earlier. I asked David what his goal was for his musical. He said he'd simply like to have a proper table read. That's where a group of actors sit together and read the script aloud in its entirety. Since our interview, I'm happy to report David had his table read. Thank you for listening to this episode of Phonicle. If you have an elder in your life that would like to share their stories for potential use in a future episode, please email me at listen at phonical.com. For more episodes of Phonical, visit phonical.com, where you can also sign up for new episode email alerts. Thanks.